From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Today is a huge day here on the podcast, both because we have a fantastic new episode and because this episode is actually kicking off a series we've been wanting to produce for a long time. And that series is called Taming Anxiety. Anxiety, to state the obvious, is a massive issue in our society. Even before the pandemic, it was on the rise, and now the situation is even worse. Chances are it has afflicted you or somebody you love at some point and on some level. Maybe you've received an actual diagnosis like generalized anxiety disorder, or maybe you're prone to symptoms closer to panic, as I've been known to experience, or perhaps you're just susceptible to a bit too much garden variety worrying. Maybe your kids are increasingly anxious, or maybe like me, you've got a few different items on the menu, some sort of sampler plate of low-level professional freakouts here and some panic attacks in elevators or on live TV over there. Anyway, wherever you are, uh, the bad news is that anxiety is unlikely to disappear overnight, but the good news is that you can change your relationship to it. Hence, this four-part series that we are launching today. We've got two episodes with scientists and one episode with a meditation expert on deck to help you learn how to tame your anxiety. And we've got a free meditation challenge that we're launching over on the 10% Happier app. And that challenge is specifically designed to help you bring the lessons that you're gonna learn here on the podcast into your practice. But before we get to that, let me introduce today's guest. We're kicking things off with a personal story. Sarah Bareilles is a fearsome polymath, a singer, songwriter, composer, actor, the list goes on. She's earned Tony and Grammy Award nominations for the Broadway musical Waitress. She's got a new album out called Amidst the Chaos, live at the Hollywood Bowl. And she stars in the very funny new Tina Fey-produced series Girls 5 Eva, which is streaming right now on Peacock. I highly recommend it. However, behind all of her artistic and professional success, uh, there is a meditator who is extremely and deliberately open and public about her struggles with anxiety and depression. In this conversation, she's gonna talk about her history of anxiety and depression, the relationship between suffering and art, and whether meditation might defang somebody's creativity. That's a big question a lot of people have. She'll talk about how she works with anger, her relationship to social media, and we're gonna get an intimate glimpse into the backstories behind some of her hit songs. As I mentioned, this is the first episode in our new Taming Anxiety series, and there will be an accompanying meditation challenge over in the 10% Happier app. That challenge is also called Taming Anxiety. We like brand continuity around here. And the challenge launches next week on Monday, June 21st. The idea here is that you're gonna be able to use the challenge to integrate everything you've learned in the podcast series into your neurons. Here's how the challenge works. You open up the app, you join the challenge, and then the experts come to you magically. Every day, you'll get a quick video featuring yours truly in conversation with a Harvard psychologist by the name of Dr. Luana Marquez and a rock star meditation teacher named Leslie Booker. They're gonna teach you how and why anxiety shows up in your mind, what you may be doing that feeds it, and what tools you can use for dealing with the difficult thoughts and emotions that arise when you're anxious. Then, after each of these little videos, you'll get a short guided meditation that will allow you to practice what you've just learned. You will also receive daily reminders to help you keep on track, and you can even invite your friends to practice with you, and you can see when they're practicing and gloat about the fact that you've, of course, done a better job. 
To join the free 10-day meditation challenge, just download the 10% Happier app wherever you get your apps or just go to 10percent.com. That's all one word spelled out. If you already have the app, just open it up and uh, follow the instructions to join. Before we dive in, just a, a quick heads up. As mentioned, this conversation does feature some explorations of depression and anxiety. Uh, there is also one very brief mention of self-harm, so just so you know. Having said that, here we go now with Sarah Borellis. All right, Sarah Borellis, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm such a fan of this show, of, of your podcast, of the app, of the whole thing. I'm a big believer. Thank you. Really appreciate that. And right back at you. You're a believer. <laughs> believer, I believe in you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so you have been phenomenally honest, and I mean phenomenally in two senses of the word, phenomenally in that you've said a lot, and phenomenally in the sense that I think you're doing a great service to a lot of people by saying a lot. Phenomenally honest about your own history with anxiety, depression, et cetera. Can you tell me when you first started to get an inkling that your mind wasn't always your best friend? Yes. I have a good friend, my friend Jesse Nelson, who's like, there are wet people and there are dry people. And I'm a wet person, meaning that like, I've always been really close to sadness and melancholy. That's always been like an emotion that came quickly for me. That was really an easy lens for me to kind of adopt. And I have to really work to see the world not through a sort of melancholic lens. And it's interesting because I'm also someone, I love the world. I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm like overall a depressed person, but when it happens, it comes acutely. And the first time I remember my dear friend anxiety showing up in my life, I was about to graduate college and I started having some disassociation and I started just being unable to sort of stay in the room with my conversations, with my actions. I could only hear kind of the chatter that was going on in my own brain. And then sort of went into a spiral about that because it wasn't an easy thing to explain. And I remember trying to explain it to people. And for people who haven't experienced acute anxiety or a disassociation, where you're sort of having a little bit of an out-of-body experience... It was like, only made me feel more lonely and misunderstood and scared. It was the end of my college. And I think I was facing the precipice of like becoming an adult. And you realize you get to the end of your schooling years. You know what's in front of you for such a long time. And you get to the end and they're like, go. <laughs> You're like, excuse me? <laughs> what? So I think I was just terrified. And I didn't really know how to even process what I was feeling about the world. It's interesting you say that because one of my big early depressive episodes was right when I graduated from college. I felt like I was looking down the barrel at the rest of my life and I had no plan. And I just, everything just turned gray. Yeah, I had a lot of, um, it would vacillate between sort of the fear of no plan and then the fear of a plan. Like everything made me feel claustrophobic. 
the idea of a life and a routine or a house or like sitting down to dinner or getting married and not not even that I was considering that at that age, but everything felt claustrophobic to me, but I didn't have an answer for what else would I want? It just felt like the idea of having to be alive for the rest of my life was an impossible thing to hold. And I never was someone who contemplated self-harm, thankfully, but I can so easily understand how quickly those thoughts might crop up and how easily you might find yourself feeling overwhelmed because I was really on the, I just couldn't imagine. How do you possibly get through so many days in a life. It just seemed unimaginable. Would you describe that as anxiety and depression? Yeah, I think I've always talked about them like they're sisters. (laughs) Like they're just this like kind of miserable relatives that show up. And I, you know, in my meditation practice and over the years of having done some reading and research about it, I do understand that a friendly quality towards these parts of ourselves is truly the remedy. But when they first started cropping up, they really felt like the monsters under the bed that would just show up and everything went cold and dark. And, you know, that melancholy lens became so wildly vivid. And I was someone who, you know, I've been working in music. My whole life has been, my artistic career has been kind of the centerpiece. So I wasn't miserable in a job I hated and, you know, couldn't pay my bills. I was touring the world and singing music for people and secretly kind of just really struggling with being okay on a day-to-day basis. What did you do about it at that point? I think the first best friend of mine was talk therapy. I was living with a good friend of mine at the time and I I had just moved out. And I, I think I was sort of realizing for myself that I had some kind of codependency issues where I would get really, really close to friends. I think I was kind of hiding from the world alongside whatever friends slot into that place at the time. And I was living alone for the first time. And I went into... I don't even remember how I found this therapist. She was awful. She was just (laughs) terrible. She was bored and like, (laughs) I feel like she didn't even say two words, but the act of articulating my internal state was like the light bulb moment. It was having to explain to someone without apology what was going on. And even though she seemed kind of bored, she wasn't shocked. There was nothing unusual or even particularly special about what I was going through, which I think in and of itself was the thing that was comforting in that. I mean, I've been in therapy now 12 years. I talk to my therapist every week. I consider it a huge part of my self-care routine. But at the time, even with a bad therapist, it was just helpful to talk about it. It's interesting. Even a bad therapist just... It seems like there may be two pieces in there. One is being able to articulate it. Then it comes out of your head and into the world in some way that you can hold it at a distance and look at it. And the second thing is the fact that she wasn't shocked. In fact, she was bored. Probably not paying attention. (laughs) Yes, right. Well, there may be that. But the fact that if she was paying attention, she wasn't shocked by it made you realize, oh, yeah, maybe this is garden variety. Right. I think that was actually a huge part of just even beginning that road towards healing is the act of articulation. I think 
being able to express, whether it's in journals or in conversation or to a therapist, but to not be afraid of what's coming out. I really do believe that, you know, the truth will set you free. It's whatever's happening is happening. And I think I was making myself feel crazy because I just didn't want it to be true. So I felt unwell on a really deep level rather than knowing that there's this massive community of people who, of course, we go through these struggles. Of course we do. How hard is it to be human? It's so hard. <laughs> Agreed. And also awesome. Mm-hmm. And there's the rub. So that was your early 20s. You went on to become super successful. You have a life that I think most outsiders would say, what's not to like? And yet the evil twin sisters would come back. Yeah. Yeah, they come back. I mean, I got a little brief visit just the other day. We find ourselves in an extraordinarily tumultuous time in the world. And there's so much to hold that doesn't really have an answer. And I think sometimes the, you know, the fragility in me is something I've come to really have a lot of tenderness towards. But I could cry just like all day long (laughs) if I wanted to. And sometimes that's not as useful. So, you know, being very overwhelmed all the time, that's not a useful state either. There's no productivity in that. There's no helpfulness in just resting in how sad or tragic or how much pain or how much sad. I mean, this is all true. But like you said, there's also so much beauty and hope and possibility and connectivity to be had as well. It's really just what are you looking at? So you talked about therapy and you mentioned at the top that you're interested in meditation. How did that come about? How did you get interested in meditation as a way to deal with the aforementioned sisters? (laughs) I got introduced... I think it was actually one of those 21-day challenges, the Deepak Chopra, Oprah Winfrey challenges. And it was about health. And I had just moved to New York City. And I just sat in my brand new apartment with my mattress on the floor and my two coffee cups. There was a real um, reset button that had been pressed in my life. I left a long life and relationship in Los Angeles. I left my band members. I left my manager, I really pressed reset in a pretty deep way. And there was some space that got created, I think, in the simplicity of my lifestyle, where I just sat and started to listen to myself a little bit differently. And I really liked the feeling of it, but it didn't stick. I didn't continue with it. I did it more intermittently for the next years. And then it was going through a really bad breakup and the depression came back with a vengeance. And I just realized there was just wasn't another way. There wasn't a way to distract away from it. I just had to like sit inside of it and get to know it. And that was where meditation really started to become helpful. I read a lot of Pema Children and got the Insight Meditation app. I also started there and and did a lot of that meditation. And then now, and I'm not even just saying this because I'm talking to you, but 10% Happier is such a wonderful companion. Really kudos to you for making such a great resource for people who want to deepen their practice. And the teachers you get are just incredible. I appreciate that very much. And you know this as somebody who's 
often the front person for large organizations that there are so many people who are doing the actual work of the app. So just a salute to those guys. And it's amazing to hear from you and others that it's useful. So what does your practice look like now? Do you struggle with consistency? Uh, um, Yeah, let's start there. At the moment, I'm not struggling with consistency, which is new for me. Every morning, it's the first thing I do. It's a little bit more challenging when I travel, but one of the things I did when my boyfriend, Joe, and I just moved into an apartment together, and one of the things I did was I really carved out a space for it. So I have a meditation. It's a tiny little room, and the washer and dryer also happen to be in that room. (laughs) (laughs) But carving out a really intentional space is what I do every morning, and it sets the day. I'm listening to some beautiful set of teachings. And then I find that, you know, I did it the other day. I just got jagged somewhere during the day. I don't even know kind of what was the catalyst for that, but I did a meditation on the train. It's something I just come back to now to whether I'm doing something guided or not. It's just a space that I touch more often. And I find that I am a better version of myself when I'm really in touch with the simplicity of the breath and how... There's so much that's out of our control. And I'm someone who really is also kind of a control freak too. So it's been really helpful for me to let go. It's counterintuitive how you think as a control freak and and you're in good company or bad company. Um, (laughs) uh, Never understood that expression. Um, As a control freak, you would think getting in touch with your lack of control would be the worst possible thing. And yet it really helps. Well, yeah, like you said, what was the phrase? self Discovery is oh. bad news. Before we started rolling, I was telling you a story about how we were talking about how both of us had experienced some anxiety during recent house moves. And you were saying a little bit about how uh, you you had some moments that you weren't that uh, proud of. And I was sympathizing and saying that I once called my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who you're familiar with, and told him about some very negative feedback I had gotten on my own personal comportment. And he paused and said, self-knowledge is always bad news. <laughs> but i think what's so great about that is the fact that you chuckle after that the lightheartedness with which we can hold the fact that of course we're flawed and ugly in certain ways like of course we are so i've really appreciated the practice of naming that part of yourself so i call her tight tina and and so tight tina shows up sometimes and it really helps me just like tell her to sit back and relax and just like pull up a seat and you don't have to drive right now. But it happens at the drop of a hat and I won't even notice that all of a sudden I'm very rigid and I'm very angry when things aren't going the way I wanted them to go. And I've always thought of myself as being like really, boy, am I a cool chick in my mind. Like I am just so chill. And then all of a sudden you let someone really get to know you. And I speak about my partner, Joe, at this point, and it's like, oh, I'm really, no, no, I'm very much not that super chill woman that I would love to be. <laughs> well, maybe you are sometimes. But yeah, you know, I like think that's true. Part of you is. Yeah. You know, that idea of like taking pleasure in seeing your own maybe this is too harsh of a word, but I'll use it anyway, seeing your own ugliness, you know, as Joseph has explained to me at times, like the Buddha even talked about that. In Buddhism, there's this idea of Mara, who is the god of desire or the god of 
the manifestation of all of our noxious inner tendencies. And occasionally in the Buddhist scriptures, the Buddha will say something like, Mara, I see you. And Joseph has interpreted that as a kind of playful thing, like, yeah, Mara, I see you. And self-knowledge can be bad news because often what you're seeing is something unpleasant. The good news is that you are seeing it and most likely then not going to be owned by it. Yeah. And Mara is sneaking in to like hang out in the back of the room. You're like, no, no, you're not going to, not going to hijack this one. Another moment that's kind of fresh in my mind from that conversation with Joseph, <laughs> where uh, I didn't plan to talk about this, but now that we're talking about that conversation with Joseph, where I, after having gotten this feedback, said something like, you know, my concern, Joseph, is that I am thoroughly rotten. and. I thought, okay, well, I've just revealed something really big. This is, was kind of my deep, dark secret. And uh, I thought this was going to be a grave moment in my conversation with Joseph. And he laughed at me. Like, not just a little laugh, a big laugh. <laughs> and at first I was taken aback. And then I realized that this is really a nice thing to do. And he said, no, you're just half rotten like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> And so, I mean, it just gets back to my point of like you, uh, or your point rather, of like seeing tight Tina, seeing all of this stuff come up, to use a grandiose term, it's liberating. So what did you do? Did you, after having that conversation with him, did you just sit with it longer? Do you find that you feel differently about that same idea of yourself today? Like, is it something that just shifted over time? It's been shifting over time. It's been a long process. You articulated it really well a short while ago where you said that you're now looking at the members of your inner cast, the cast of characters, with a sense of humor and some warmth, your own fragility, your own controlling aspects of your nature. For me, I'm a tough case. It takes me a little longer, but I've started to slowly come around to, I guess the term of art here would be self-compassion of just viewing, you know, your own stuff with a sense of humor. Yeah. It's so hard because, especially with, I think, like culturally, we're set up in a way, if you're on social media or even paying attention to what's happening in the public eye, there's so much comparison happening. And and there's also this very false sense of what's being put forward. And so I feel like it's like the great trick that gets played on us that we're supposed to be happy all the time. It gets talked about ad nauseum, but that there's a pill or there's a distraction or there's a thing to buy that's actually taking us away from the truth, which is that sometimes we will just be sad or sometimes we will just be angry or hurt or vulnerable or exposed or they're just that actually we have to learn how to cope with those uncomfortable things in a way that doesn't derail the whole production. And that's what I work hard on trying to uh, build a relationship with that. Cause I don't think it gets any more fun. It's not like it gets awesome to <laughs> realize like I'm a <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> like I'm not thrilled about that, but I find that I spend less time punishing myself for it. It's just, I hear on the app a lot, it gets spoken about as like, I wasn't skillful in that moment. It's like moving through 
a moment of tightness or discomfort or someone says something that upsets me and not reacting in a way that was skillful. And then you catch yourself and you're like, well, I'm going to try to do better next time. But I know my heart. I try to be a kind person, but it doesn't mean I'm not a legit There's a uh, concept that I heard of from a woman who's been on this show before. Her name is Dolly Chug, and she's a uh, professor at NYU, and she looks a lot at bias, prejudice, things like that. And her concept is good-ish. Most of us think of ourselves as good people. But then when when it's pointed out to us that we've done something bad— or unskillful, that threatens our identity as a good person, and it can go haywire in a number of ways. If you relabel yourself as good-ish, well, then you've got the elasticity, the flexibility in there to know, yes, you can be a legit expletive sometimes, and, like, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I like that. I mean, I think we have to have, it's like, I always thought about it as learning to become your own friend. The way we're so forgiving of the people that we really love. We like we can see them trying and failing or trying and just not ending up where they had anticipated they would. And how much forgiveness and generosity is available when you love someone. You're like, of course you tried. Of course you did your best. It didn't work out the way you thought it would. Or, But if there's just even a tiny opportunity to practice spending some of that generosity on ourselves how much farther we'll get. Well said, and I completely agree. And you kind of brought me to something I did want to talk about, which is it's something you've written about in your music, which is how anxiety or any other inner hobgoblin can be alleviated when things are going well through having close, intimate relationships. And I believe the song was called Someone Who Loves Me. Hmm. And am I right about that? That was kind of the theme of that song? Yeah. I wrote that about my partner, Joe. And really the idea that getting to a place, I think about this with myself as well, but it's really powerful when you receive this kind of love from another person is just someone who stays. It just can exist next to you in the pain. It's really so powerful. And it's something I'm not, I have to work harder at with my friends, with my loved ones. I have a really hard time when someone else is in pain. And my tendency is to want to fix it or, you know, do the grand gesture that's going to take away all of the problems. And something that my therapist says that I think about a lot is that We have to allow everyone the dignity of their own discomfort. And that sometimes fixing someone else's problem is not really the fix. It's actually about allowing someone to just be in pain. And that there is the, that is a dignified process as well. But yeah, letting someone see you and all your mess is a lot harder to do in practice than, I mean, it's, it's something I talked about in song and sort of like the kind of love I always wished for. And then, but ultimately it is about which version of me shows up too. It's not just about the person on the other side who's willing to stay. It's like, what are you willing to show? Knowing that they might walk away. They, it might be too much. 
they might be me. <laughs> they like <laughs> got to peace out for a minute. Um, it's really, you know, it's it's an act of faith. It sounds like Joe's a good dance partner here in that you were willing to show some of this stuff that's not comfortable showing. And he, instead of going into fix-it mode, has the capacity to just kind of stay there and be in the dark with you. Yeah, he really does. He has a really generous heart and there's a lot of space for, I mean, honestly, I think for anyone who would be partnered with me, there would have to be a lot of capacity to hold my stuff because I'm a real emotional, (laughs) I'm a really emotional person. My highs are really high. My lows are really low. And I have noticed meditation has helped balance some of that. I think not that I don't feel a great amount of joy anymore or anything, but I think that I bounce back a little bit better from the lows than I used to. But yeah, anybody who was going to love me was going to have to like love the ride a little bit too. Have you ever worried, because I've heard this from creative folks, that if the ride isn't so bumpy, the art won't be so good? Yeah, I do worry about that. I don't, I haven't written a lot of songs lately. And we were just talking about this the other day, actually, is because pain is so fertile. It craves being expressed and it's so relatable. And especially I find as, as a writer, there's a lot of people out there that depend on you to translate the emotion because they haven't been given that part of the gift. And so I feel like as songwriters and as writers and artists out there, that's part of our duty is to try to translate so someone else has something to hold while they walk through that part of their life. So it is a, it's a little bit more of a stretch, I think, when you're feeling sort of satiated inside your heart. <laughs> There's just another code to crack, I think. There's plenty to write about. There's plenty of pain to access, but I also think it might be a nice challenge to try to write something joyful too. My job is less traditionally creative than yours, although I, you know, as you know, I write books and I found just for me, there is still plenty of pain and that the most creative I ever feel is when I'm on meditation retreats. Wow. You may remember this was your piece of advice to me when we were connected by our friend Meredith Scardino months ago before I moved into my new apartment and I was talking to you about wanting to deepen my practice. And that was your, the main piece of advice. You're like, it sounds like you need a retreat. And I didn't even think about it being attached to creativity. It's not like I sit around writing for long periods of time. It's that I'm flooded with ideas. And so I take a notebook and write a bunch of stuff down. Now, as I've joked before, there are times where I emerge from retreat thinking, I've written some beautiful stuff and it looks like the Unabomber's scrawling. So you don't know what you're going to get when the muse visits. But nonetheless, I found that the turning down of the volume of habitual rumination allows for other stuff to come up. And it's unpredictable, but generally speaking, there's a flood of other stuff. What kinds of things come through for you? Is it like book ideas or like what, what kinds of things? It's not ideas for new books. It's ideas for the book, whatever book I'm writing at the moment. New ways to say things, new insights into the way the mind works, new insights, usually new insights into what a moron I am. You know, uh, it's you're just seeing how your own 
version of lunacy and and how it shows up and the kind of crazy things you're saying to yourself. I often make myself laugh a lot. So coming up with dumb jokes that I'm going to put in a book or I'm going to tell my son and watch his face turn sour <laughs> because nobody's more annoying to him than his dad. He's six, and I'm often telling him dumb jokes, and he's giving me this stink eye. But I did confirm him with him the other day that when he's a dad, he's going to do the same thing. Highest compliment. Nice work. Anyway, my point is that, you know, you don't know what you're going to get. And this is just my experience. I won't guarantee that for any other, you or anybody else. But I've found that meditation does not kill creativity. Mm, I agree. I mean, I can't speak to the retreat experience, but I, oh my gosh, I think it's the opposite. Because you're getting to see your inner workings so much more clearer. I know your feelings about things that get too spiritual, but let, let that, um, I actually really believe that the universe responds really positively to the gesture of making space for creativity, that sometimes you do just have to kind of worship at the altar without knowing what will come through. And I really think that it does respond. I mean, songwriting for me was always like a huge act of, I think now in looking back meditation or prayer, or that was my relationship to sort of like my spiritual practice was writing songs. And then as my business grew around it, that sort of pure seed of it starts to have to hold a lot more complexities. Now I'm in my early forties and I think back on those first years of songwriting. And it was just like taking a sketchbook into the woods. Like that's what it was. It wasn't for anything. And now wanting to kind of reclaim some of that, I think for myself. This may disappoint some of my skeptical listeners, but I actually have no problem with what you just said about the universe. I mean, yes! it's mysterious the way the creativity works. There's a reason why the language is the muse visits. It does feel like you're receiving a letter from somebody else instead of inventing it on your own. I can see from your face that that lands for you. It does. And I have a little bit of an allergy to when people start to take a lot of ownership over even their work as if it it wasn't kind of, I always have felt, you know, as, a, as writers, we're channeling something. We're connecting into some greater network that has been around long before we were here and will continue to be around. And especially with music, I think when people get very proprietary about music, it, it feels a little bit <laughs> pathetic because it's just, it's so much bigger than any person. And so I think remaining really open. You know, I love that quote by Martha Graham about the blessed unrest and that it's our job as artists to keep the channel open, not to judge what comes through, but keep marching on the blessed unrest towards the next idea. This is the type of sentiment that I would have historically been allergic to, but I remember years ago, before I wrote any book or anything like that, I was having lunch with a friend of mine who's also a meditator and a well-known skeptic. His name is Sam Harris. We're not related, but he's a very sort of well-known skeptical guy, but also a well-known meditator. And I was praising some book he had written years before, and he said, honestly, I don't even feel like I wrote it. I have that experience too, like music. I don't, it doesn't feel like it was mine. I mean, I can remember going through whatever churning experience was happening at the time, but it was, especially as we age and we get, you know, further and further away from the person that actually wrote whatever it was, we changed so much. 
Much more of my conversation with Sarah Bareilles right after this. And we're back now with Sarah Bareilles. So how has your anxiety and depression been during the pandemic? Just horrific. Just awful. Through the roof. Had a really intense kind of like meltdown in the middle. And one of my like the close companions for anxiety for me is this claustrophobic feeling and starting to feel, especially if I'm in relationship at the time, that's the first stop. I'm like, well, we got to break up. I can never be with you. You have to go. You have to move out. It's, this is really bad. I'm being told by the universe, you got to go. And most often it's actually my anxiety is usually attached to some unexpressed desire, some wish, some resentment that's building, something I'm not communicating. And I'm feeling anxious about not wanting to hurt the other person's feelings or not wanting to take up space or not wanting to, you know, fill in the blank. But within the context of the pandemic, there were so many elements of it that were out of our control. And it was such an exercise in surrender to an unknown like entity in every way, shape, and form. It was, we didn't know how long it was going to last. We didn't know how bad it was going to get. We didn't know who it was going to touch in our lives. You know, and then the conversations around race that began in the middle of the summer and all of the discomfort that comes with really re-examining the systems that we have known in our lives and it's all so deeply important and so uncomfortable. And then the politically charged conversations that were happening and then realizing people that I love don't think the same way that I do and having to come to terms with that and still struggling with that and where to put those feelings of disappointment and judgment. I mean, 2020, what a doozy, huh? 2021 is better, but um, not entirely awesome. Before you talked about your self-care regimen, and and we've talked about a number of things that you do to help with anxiety and depression, whatever's going on for you. We talked about therapy, meditation. Exercise. Art. art. We haven't talked about exercise, but that's on your list, clearly. Another thing that I've read that is important to you is activism. Would it be fair to say that using your platform to speak out on issues you care about is a mitigating factor on anxiety? I think it is to a certain degree. And I'm actually having a really interesting kind of experience of it in the moment because I sense that we're in a new phase of it where it almost feels like, let's just take Instagram as an example. It starts to feel that or at least in my bubble, I should say, in the community of people that I follow and see, experience them online. If you're not talking about activism or you're not dealing with social justice issues or there has become this pressure to, if you're not saying something at all times about whatever issue is in the foreground, then that's an act of violence in a way. 
And I just have felt thoughtful about that recently because it can start to feel like one gets a little bit bullied into (laughs) engaging. And I just always want to make sure that I'm really, I'm trying to be as authentic with my expression as an activist and as an artist and as a person on the earth as I can be. And I absolutely care about lots of issues But it is interesting. It starts to feel like pressuresome. And I'm not even sure that making sure you post about something is actually the most effective thing to do. You know, it's wanting to make sure that the engagement is actually meaningful. So it's just something I've been thinking about a lot because uh, it's a space I spend time on. Fair to call it a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's empowering to have a platform to be able to speak out on issues you care about. On the other hand, you want to make sure you're doing it because you want to do it, not because you feel peer pressured into it by other people whose images slide by you on the scroll? Yeah. I think, you know, that there's sort of um, nauseating to talk about cancel culture, but I do think it's something to be examined that without any capacity for forgiveness or the space for someone to learn, how are we going to move forward? Because there's a lot, I mean, we, I have a lot to learn. And I find that sometimes I get really crippled with this feeling of being afraid to make a mistake. And so I don't, I end up not saying anything because I'm so afraid of offending someone or saying the wrong thing or not having the right speech with which to discuss a complicated thing. And so like, I want to be open and available to learning And at the same time, knowing that like we learn by making some mistakes, unfortunately, and which is not to say that there shouldn't be exhaustion with people being like, catch up already. You know, I feel that in myself where it's a lot of learning, a lot of unlearning, all of the above. I share all of those anxieties about social media, which is why I basically don't go on Instagram. Yeah, I've thought about it a few times where I'm like, maybe this actually isn't a healthy it feels like a place to be social, but I'm not so sure it is. I think I'm I'm just like slowly trying to like do my own ad campaign. And I'm like, I don't think that's like what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, between what you described before, the sort of comparing yourself to other people's carefully curated images and also just feeling like you need to participate in a dialogue, but also fearing that if you do participate, it's going to blow up in your face. A lot of that is really tricky. There is one Instagram account I'm kind of obsessed with, so I actually log into it via the web, the open web. Uh, Tony Baker is a comedian who does these incredible... Do you know who he I is? I follow him, yeah. Oh, you do? <laughs> yeah, so you've seen the these voiceovers? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this is completely uh, uh, irrelevant, but if anybody's looking for a small way to mitigate whatever sadness, worry, anything else that's going on for you. Tony Baker is this incredible comedian. I have never met him, so I have nothing, no skin in this game here. But Tony Baker is an incredible comedian who does these little videos where he voices over animals in very funny voices. And my wife and I will watch it for extended periods of time. It's really funny. I also think the good news movement is just one of my favorite follows. There's always something lighthearted or something. It's about good news. And it's so nice to go on there. And yeah, I find that I, I when I'm feeling low, I gravitate towards the animal videos and then the good news movement where, <laughs> where it's just, it's stuff that's going to make you feel good. It's the best of humanity.
Let me ask you about this song, Armor, which isn't necessarily about anxiety and depression, but it is about an emotion many of us experience. I'll just speak for myself. I experience it on the regular, where you talk about anger. Yeah, I wrote Armor after coming back from the Women's March in 2016. And I must say, I think that was my first real personal interest in activism and getting my actual physical body involved in some movement or some mode of expression, that some mode of resistance. I mean, it was an introductory experience for me and it was tremendously powerful. And so my best friends and my actual sister and I went to DC and we marched on Washington and it was, you know, a sea of pink hats and it was just otherworldly. It was so beautiful and so powerful and so safe and so calm and so strong. And I came back and I, I felt like for all of the things that I am disappointed in that I saw in the past administration, there was an awakening and there was an activation that happened that I do actually feel gratitude for. And I felt like um, within that song, you know, just sort of deconstructing the idea of what it means to be a woman and really looking at some of these stories we get told as women from, and men, I mean, everything in between, things we get told from such a young age about who we are and what it means to be a fill in the blank. And just recognizing that it's time for a revision (laughs) and it's time to open up the discussion and actually reclaim what feels good about it and what doesn't. And anger is not comfortable for me at all. I'm deeply afraid of confrontation. I'm not good at it. I'm not, I find that it's usually, I've learned to appreciate anger as being an indicator of something's wrong, but I find that it's not the most efficient emotion. It's really easy. And this is actually a lot of what I feel like I'm experiencing from the conversation online, especially, is that people are sort of stuck in the whirlpool of anger. And there's something beyond that, that I think is actually a more powerful place to work from. But that's just me speaking for myself. And I don't mean to discount the value of anger because it's here for a reason. I think I heard this in your comments earlier that you have the sense that the culture, maybe even parents, are telling girls growing up into women that anger is not okay for them. I think so. I think it's almost inextricably linked to other parts of it, where it's the people-pleasing, the nurturer, the one who's sort of oriented out. I think as, as young girls, we are oriented towards the group think. We're oriented towards making sure everybody's okay. We're the ones given the chores, you know, and this is, I know this is an overgeneralization, of course, but um, there are real differences into how young boys and young girls are socialized. And I think there's a wild reckoning about that now, which I feel really lucky to be able to see in real life. I work with a group in Los Angeles, the Rock and Roll Camp for Girls, Los Angeles. It's run by some of my best friends. And their whole mission statement is to help girls turn up the volume of their voice, where we get to take up space. We get to have 
needs and wishes and desires like anybody else, and we don't have to attach them to an apology. Young women have always been a demographic I'm really passionate about and wanting to speak to young women and encourage them to not apologize for being who they are and not apologize for any of the things that we are as people, you know, angry, frustrated, sad, demanding, um, having high expectations, having low expectations, like whatever it is that it's, we don't have to apologize for being who we are. I do think that we're seeing a rewriting of the rules in a, in a really good way. Just on this issue of anger, I'll tell you what somebody smart said to me recently and see if it lands for you. I, <laughs> I have this friend who's now a big time CNN anchor. His name is Chris Cuomo. And uh, I worked with him for years when he was at ABC News. And he once wrote this really funny thing about how he had two emotional gears as a male, anger and self-pity. And um, <laughs> particularly insightful, and I always felt it just kind of described my inner uh, landscape quite well, at least at least for much of my life. And I was recently told by somebody very smart that anger is a secondary emotion, generally covering up for something beneath it. And I, just exploring that in my own life, that is, I found it to be largely true. Usually it's fear. Yeah, I think that's right. I relate to that too. It makes sense to me that anger is a mask. It's so easy to hide behind it too, because it's so vulnerable to be afraid. It's so dangerous to be afraid because it feels, not that it is, but it feels weak or it feels exposed and it makes you susceptible to pain. And it's just easier to be angry than it is to be hurt. Yep, easier and a, a mask. I like those descriptions, and I and I think it really rhymes quite nicely with your comments about what we're seeing on social media, where people are just stuck in the anger, almost performatively, almost sort of kind of enjoying the anger, and often not moving to the more constructive, self-reflective stuff. I had an experience that was very clarifying to me. I wrote the music and lyrics for a Broadway musical called Waitress, and I was doing a run of the show. And there's a particular moment in the show where I'm singing the, the main song from the show. The lead character, Jenna, is kind of doing her big emotional number. It's called She Used to Be Mine. And inside the show, you're on a couch, and you're sort of towards the front edge of, edge of the stage. And there are no phones allowed in the theater, of course, but I could see the phone on the lap of a person in the front row. And it's dark enough where you can't really see who it is or like people kind of feel shrouded by the darkness there. But the metallicness of your phone is like, it's a reflective surface. So the, the lights on the stage catch it. It's really easy to see phones in the space, even if you can't see who's holding it. So I saw this person holding up a phone and it was clear that she was taking a video of the performance. And I was so out of body enraged, almost went up on my lines, almost couldn't remember the words to the song because I was so focused on the audacity of this person. And I came off stage at the end of the show, I made this really angry video and I posted it online and I gave this person what for. And I was just, you know, telling everyone how enraged I was and don't effing use your cell phones in the theater. Mm. And I got so <laughs> much positive reinforcement for being angry. I got so many comments, so many, yeah, we're with you. What 
that, you know, all of that stuff. But something about what I was receiving did not feel good. I felt like I was getting a pat on the back for something I actually, if I had let myself calm down a little bit, I would not have been proud of. And then I got a message from what ended up being a young girl's sister who was like, that was my little sister who took the video and she's so embarrassed. She's 12 years old. She's like, we're so sorry. Please forgive us. What can we do? And I felt about, you know, yay, hi. It's like, what even possessed me to act out like that? I mean, I don't love a cell phone in a theater. I do feel that way. But what a base reaction. What a gross outpouring of ugliness. And then to know that it landed on a little 12-year-old girl who I'm, you know, marching about is just a deep embarrassment. So I wrote them back several times and like tried to check on her and stuff. And I have a deepest regret about sharing that, but I also got so much positive feedback for being angry. And I was like, this is poison. This is not something I will do again. So that's why I don't get pissed on social media. I just don't find that it feeds the right wolf. (laughs) (laughs) I want to give you positive feedback for seeing that. It's huge. And it's probably in the end, a good thing that happened because you saw something really important. I also want to give you positive feedback for saying it publicly. It's useful to hear. Well, it wasn't cute. It was not, not charming. Yeah, but uh, I think that the stuff that is most useful is rarely cute. Yeah, that's true. Which leads me to the final serious question I want to ask you, which is, why do this? You don't have to be honest about your interior life outside of your songs. You don't have to talk about anxiety and depression. I'm glad you do, but why, why do you do it? I think mostly because I just don't want anyone to feel alone. Because it's not true. It's not true that you're the only one holding pain or vulnerability or embarrassment. And I think that ultimately I just want people to be okay. A couple years ago, I interviewed a band called Culture Abuse. They're not really into meditation, but I would just, I really liked their their music. I really love their music. And I really liked that their front man has um he has some physical condition he's disabled and um i just love that he you know because it's so open but it's hard to get up on stage in front of punk band with a disability and i just loved the combination of his skill and his courage and after the interview he posted a picture of me on twitter he said this guy just wants everybody to be okay with themselves or something to that and i never really thought about myself that way and i have tried to live up to that caption for years. That's the coolest thing ever. (laughs) Like what a deep kindness to offer. Well, I say it because you are offering that kindness and I I really have a lot of respect for it and I'm very grateful to you for doing it. I think it's really important. Back at you, thank you. Do you mind if I ask a a few lighter questions before we go here? You, You mentioned Meredith Scardino. She's an extremely talented TV writer. And she's created a new show that's airing on Peacock, the streaming service. The show is called Girls 5 Eva. You're one of the stars. Can you tell us about the show? Yes. Girls 5 Eva is, in my opinion, a brilliant new musical comedy 
created by Meredith Scardino, who also is the author of The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. So for fans of The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt or fans of 30 Rock, Tina Fey and Jeff Richmond are executive producers. And it's about a girl group in the 90s who had their moment in the sun and have gone on to their lives and are getting a second chance at being pop stars, I suppose. I guess that's what they're aiming for. It's everything I love all in one thing. It's comedy, it's music, it's female forward. It's been such a deep joy to get to work on this show. It's hilarious. The cast is insane. It's Busy Phillips and Paula Pell and Renee Elise Goldsberry and Ashley Park and Erica Henningsen. These are some Broadway darlings and some TV giants. And it was just an incredible experience. And we get to be just kind of ridiculous. And there's a lot of flashbacks and incredible, ridiculous music, like <laughs> Dream Girlfriends. Dream Girlfriends, because our dads are dead. So you never <laughs> have to meet them and get asked why you left school. It's, it's stuff like that. <laughs> From the mind of Meredith Gardino, I'll say she's just somebody I've known socially in New York for a couple of decades. And I know this is a way to endorse um, Meredith and her work for this audience. She has done at least one 10-day silent meditation retreat. And... One of her best friends from back when she was on the Colbert Report on Comedy Central, she was one of the writers for that show. Uh, one of her best friends from that time, a woman named Liz Levin, is now a senior executive at uh, 10% Happier. Amazing. Wow. Full circle. And Meredith introduced me to you. So, Meredith, shout out to you. Final question for you. I, I know uh, that you recently released a record. Can you tell us about that? So at the end of 2019, we went on this big, beautiful tour supporting a record called Amidst the Chaos um, that I recorded with one of my musical heroes, T-Bone Burnett. Um, he produced that record and it was a really proud, beautiful record of and uh, this incredible tour. We played Madison Square Garden and we played some venues that I had wanted to play my whole life. I mean, I started at coffee shops and open mics. So to get to earn your way to headline and sell out Madison Square Garden was like an insane arc. And one of the places we played was the Hollywood Bowl. And I came up in Los Angeles. So that was the pinnacle for me, was always having my eye on the marquee of the Hollywood Bowl. And in November of 2019, we played the Hollywood Bowl for the first time. I played for the first time. And we made a recording of the night because I knew I wanted to make a live record and I'd never want to forget the night. And um, and then 2020 happened, of course. And so it didn't feel appropriate to do anything sort of self-promoting last year. It just, I was very quiet emotionally and spiritually. And, and then... Um, it's lined up beautifully to, um, you know, the world starts to feel like it's opening up again and we're releasing this record, which feels like it's hearkening back to this really sweet season in my life. And for so many of us, it was like a lot of people's last concert they saw. It's, you know, at the end of 2019, that's when we were feeling the, the beginnings of the virus and, and what was to come. Um, but yeah, I had no idea at the time that it would be the last show I would play for a long, long time. Everybody check out the record. Everybody check out the TV show. And if she's still on Instagram by the time this post, <laughs> check out Sarah on Instagram <laughs> if I haven't convinced her to get off. Um, is there anything that I should have asked that I didn't ask? Any areas that we 
could have explored that I kind of failed to guide us to? I don't think so. I found this to be thoroughly enjoyable. And I say genuinely, I've been looking forward to this so much. I really admire the conversations you're having. So thank you for letting me be one of them. Thank you for being one of them. I was looking forward to it too. And uh, thank you again. Really appreciate it. Thanks Great job. again. You too. Thanks again to Sarah. Before we head out, let me just mention again our upcoming 10-day meditation challenge, the Taming Anxiety Challenge, which will teach you how to respond skillfully to anxiety. It starts on Monday, June 21st. Download the 10% Happier app wherever you get your apps to join tens of thousands of other people all working to address anxiety a little bit more skillfully at the same time. This show, which is a massive undertaking, is made by some incredible people, including Samuel Johns, DJ Kashmir, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Plant with audio engineering by Ultraviolet Audio. As always, a huge shout out to my ABC News comrades, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Wednesday for part two in our anxiety series. We're going to talk about the science of anxiety with uh, a really fascinating expert. Her name is Dr. Luana Marquez.